0: We don't wish to speak ill of those who used to be part of this show, but sometimes they really made things difficult for us. The new us, which is me, and not the old us, which was us, just so we're clear. See, there's a whole world full of topics we could discuss on this show, and as you may have noticed, we've done a fair few. Just to pick a few examples purely at random, without any premeditation at all, and certainly not because they are the precise examples that detail the problem we have been caused almost entirely on their own, we've talked about arbalests and fables, riddles and socks, footpads and Mott and Bailey castles, labyrinths and leather armor, which, as you will no doubt recall, didn't exist at all. And all these episodes are great in their own particular way, and you should certainly listen to them at least three or four more times to appreciate just how great they are. But also, they each, in their own particular way, caused us a little bit more trouble each time a new one came along. The new us, not the old us, just to be clear. None is more problematic than the episode entitled, "Hood." It covers a number of subjects within the confines of the episode, from the kinds of hoods you wear, to the kinds of hoods who hang out causing trouble. But most troublesome to us is a topic, a person even, that the episode stops to briefly discuss right in the middle of the whole thing. Of course, this is where the old us caused the new us no small amount of trouble. You see, this episode is about outlaws... And no greater medieval outlaw existed, nor is there one more exemplary than the fabled Robin Hood, he of the merry men. And boy, it sure would make for a great episode if we could, right now, launch into a big discussion of Robin Hood, Maid Marian, Little John, Friar Tuck, and all the rest of the gang who hung out in the forest of Nottingham, avoiding the sheriff, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor, all in the name of defying a king who wasn't all that terrible, as we may have mentioned as recently as just last week. All while awaiting the return of the quote-unquote proper king, Richard the Lionhearted, who, also after last week, you won't be at all surprised to learn, wasn't so hot after all. But we can't do that. And that's the problem that was created for the new us by the old us. Just to be clear. It's already been done and thoroughly discussed enough between the episode about hoods and all those other ones we mentioned before. Across 11 episodes, if you kept up or caught up, you'll have heard all the relevant bits about Robin Hood that are worth hearing. Even the bit about him really being Ivan Ho. Which, as we've pointed out, is a problem when discussing famous outlaws of the Middle Ages. Robin Hood was one, but we've already had all we can stand about him. There's not much left to say. So what do we do? The new we, not the old us, just to be clear. It's a real problem making sure the new we don't repeat the old we unnecessarily and bore you with too much material you've probably already heard us explain. Except, as it turns out, there are some fairly fundamental elements related to the story of Robin Hood we haven't explained before. And they don't just apply to Robin Hood. They apply to everyone who was classed as an outlaw in medieval society, and they are all well worth knowing if you happen to be running a game that involves the concept of outlaws. Also, these people score over old Robin Hood in one other very important aspect. You see, they actually existed. Seriously, go listen to Hood. This is GM Word of the Week. And I'm Fiddleback. We suppose that much of the modern concept of what an outlaw is runs counter to what an outlaw actually was in the Middle Ages. See, today's present concept of the outlaw is based on the romanticized ideal that first cropped up in the 1800s. The romantics thought that the modern day was pretty rubbish. The Industrial Revolution and the Age of Enlightenment were overrated, and did no one any good at all, they reasoned. Far better would it be if we were more like our ancestors during the Middle Ages, you know, when everyone was a free individual and more closely tied to nature, completely ignoring that none of the Middle Ages was actually like that. They knew about Nasty, Brutish, and Short, but as far as most Romantics were concerned, that was okay by them. Romanticism wasn't really about facts anyway. It was all about the feel of the thing. In fact, the more intensely one felt something, the more apt it was to be true, according to romantic thought. Feelings were pure, unencumbered things that if followed would lead one to the truest experiences, the most real sense of self, and take society to a more pure and noble place, by which they meant to follow the medieval example. To be fair, this applied mostly in terms of art and literature. But even so, it still had an influence on most aspects of 19th century society. Everything from science to history changed to reflect the Romantic notion that somehow, in spite of what history actually told us, things were way better in medieval society than they were during the 1800s, and we should all strive to be more like them. Which is why, when it came to people like Robin Hood and other outlaws, the Romantics had a major hand in changing our definition of the term. See, what a romantic liked more than anything else was a heroic symbol which, though it might not be strictly accurate, still managed to shine light on current society and show how much better it all was back then and how these hero figures, who stood up to tyrants and taxes and laws, were really sticking it to the man and fighting the system. Even if they had to bend the truth and totally redefine what it meant to be an outlaw. Or even who could be an outlaw. Because, according to the Romantics, outlaws were people of pure heart and noble cause. They acted selflessly and for the common good. Their actions were justified on the grounds that they were morally right, unconcerned with the law of the land. And so, therefore, they were just better than everyone else, and we should all work harder to be more like them. To do less was a terrible moral failure. And so, outlaw came to mean someone who broke the law for a higher, morally proper purpose. Robin Hood didn't fight the sheriff of Nottingham and oppose Prince John because Robin had a lot of trouble following the law and poaching the king's deer, provided we assume any of what we think we know about Robin Hood is true in the first place, which it isn't. He fought the sheriff and opposed Prince John because Robin was a man of noble spirit who opposed injustice wherever he might find it and robbed from the undeserving rich to give to the noble and deserving poor. It helped the Romantics that 300 years had passed and a lot of propaganda that had come about from kings trying to legitimize their reign had been handed down unspoiled through the centuries, but it was still a heavily massaged view of history that bore even less resemblance to the truth than the already poorly fact checked histories in question. In effect, a whole slew of real medieval outlaws was transformed by romanticism from very real people with very real lives into stories that exemplified romantic ideals and came to represent what is sometimes called social banditry. A social bandit is someone from the lower classes who breaks the law, but whose actions in doing so are approved by those same lower classes. In effect, it's the person who does the thing you wish you had done instead in the face of danger or trouble. Robin Hood is the classic example of this. He robbed from the rich, yes, but that's okay because he gave it to the poor, which is us, and who wouldn't be in favor of that? Not us, certainly. History and literature are full of such examples. There are stories about people who exact a very specific revenge against someone who has wronged them, people who, in order to feed their families, steal to do so. Even the people who failed to pay their taxes could be seen as protesting against the government and could therefore be considered social bandits if society is all in favor of them acting that way. In general, the populace tends to look on social banditry as right and proper, even if it is, technically at least, against the law. For the Romantics, the social bandit was practically what everyone should aspire to be a member of society who followed their feelings and took their own individual path, and importantly, rebelled against the social structures of the day. These people were heroes to be emulated, and the tales of Robin Hood were ripe for the picking, and set the gold standard by which other heroes could be made and measured. Robin Hood became the ideal social bandit hero. Which is unfortunate for what it has done to our understanding of what an outlaw actually is was. In medieval times, you didn't necessarily become an outlaw just because you had committed a few crimes approved of or not. Instead it was a very specific punishment handed out in judgment that carried some very serious repercussions unlike anything we still have today. In England, before William the Conqueror showed up and changed the face of English society, most people belonged to someone else. Not in a romantic way but in the same way that your iPhone belongs to you as some sort of property. That was how people related to each other and how society functioned. To live outside that structure was to be an outlaw, and it fundamentally changed your relationship to the rest of society. Since everyone was bound to someone else, anyone who wasn't was automatically suspicious and potentially very dangerous. After all, if he didn't belong to anyone... He must have either done something terrible in order to break free or be in some way unfit to be part of society. Because literally everyone else everyone knew was in roughly the same boat, anyone not in that boat was a problem. A man without a lord was at a significant disadvantage, and so his family would work very hard to find him one. In order to understand why this was so, it helps to understand how early medieval English law worked. First, there was no difference in law between civil and criminal law, it was all treated as one and the same thing. And everyone who owned property had their own peace, which could be breached. Which meant that in any given location, depending on who the landowner was, the laws could be different from any other given location. When someone broke the local landowner's peace, whatever that might be, the landowner would appeal to the local court and demand a cash payment for the offense based on a sort of menu of offenses and their approximate values. So, when the accused was called to appear before the court, he would either be required to produce a number of people called oath helpers who could swear to his innocence or pay the cash price of the offense. Depending on the status of the person accused, the number of Oath Keepers required and the price of the offense could change wildly. And importantly, since most people were some sort of property to someone else, every life had an associated value. Peasants might be worth 200 shillings, while aristocrats might be 2,000. The list of penalties, then, for various offenses can be seen as a means of repaying value that had been lost. In some cases, lost years cost 12 shillings, Mutilated ears cost six, eyes were fifty shillings, and your four front teeth were worth six shillings each, which raises some questions about the tooth fairy, which we aren't prepared to explore at this time. If someone refused to pay up for their offenses, the victim could go to war against them. Worse still was not having enough oath helpers to back up your claim of innocence. Without the required number for your station in life, you were automatically subject to the cost of the damage you had done, innocent or not you can begin to see how it would be advantageous to the landowner to perhaps charge people with breaching the peace a little more frequently than might be necessary, or to create new offenses to be charged against where none had existed before. If you didn't have enough friends or money, the only other legal alternative was to subject yourself to a trial by ordeal, which you can hear all about in our fifth episode ever. Suffice to say, a trial by ordeal was not the way to go if you could avoid it. But there were those people who, innocent or not, couldn't muster enough oath helpers or sufficient coin to pay the fines, and so decided that rather than go through the ordeal, they'd simply hide and avoid the trial altogether. These, then, are the people who became outlaws. They became people without communities, who had no oath value, so no price could be attached to their lives. Therefore, the law could neither help them nor harm them. They were outside the law the name. Notice that it says nothing about their guilt or innocence, just their inability to find enough people to back them up or enough coin to pay. Which meant, since they had no value, and therefore no cost could be assessed for injury which they might incur, they could be killed for free, without any penalty to the person or persons who killed them. Because the law wasn't about right or wrong, It was about balancing the books. And the last time we checked, zero minus zero was still zero. Anyone who found an outlaw was expected to take action against them immediately, and you could make quite a name for yourself by getting rid of one. Even if an outlaw wasn't found and killed, they still had it pretty rough. It was forbidden to feed, house, or communicate with them. They were not part of the communities in which they might be hiding. They gave up everything, property, and what few rights they had prior to becoming an outlaw, and anyone who helped them or spoke to them in any way was in danger of being outlawed themselves. Dead outlaws were far less trouble for everyone concerned. Then along about 1066, everything changed when William the Conqueror showed up and said, Guess how I got my name? When the Normans took charge, a strange thing happened. At least, it seemed strange to the Normans. See, they started turning up dead, and, more worryingly, the people who were killing the Normans weren't showing up to turn themselves in when asked. Naturally, William didn't appreciate this at all, so he decided that everyone should swear an oath of fealty to him and then be organized into groups of ten of their closest friends and neighbors. A tithe. Simple enough. Of course, then what would happen was a Norman would be killed... And William would very politely say to the district where the body was found, If you don't mind, we want the chap what done it. We'd like him to help us with our inquiries. And then, when the chap inevitably didn't turn up, the entire tithe would be subject to a hefty fine. Oh, also, rather than paying the fines and penalties to the wrong party, just go ahead and pay them to old WTC himself. After all, it was the king's peace you were now breaching which effectively put an end to the old system. Unless, of course, it was a case in which one of the Norman French was involved. Then, if the offense was between noble and noble, it was trial by combat and let God sort it out. But if it was between Norman and English, well, the English were allowed the choice of either trial by combat or trial by ordeal and let God sort it out. Which quickly meant that it became a bad idea to denounce offenders to the legal system you might find yourself in a combat you were ill-prepared for, or worse, the person you were accusing might survive an ordeal, meaning they were innocent and you had to pay a hefty fine just for bringing a false charge. Suddenly, using the laws and the court system became an unattractive prospect for nearly everyone involved. Outlaws went from being people removed from normal society and its laws to people who refused to participate in a system imposed on them by outsiders and that lacked any sort of moral basis. And, mostly, it was the dispossessed English nobility, who found themselves with all sorts of disputes about how their lands were being taken over and parceled out to the Normans, who became the new breed of outlaws, living at the fringe of society. However, by 1154, the whole system of law and its enforcement had collapsed again, and then-King Henry II needed a new system— His solution was to create a series of lower courts and traveling judges and seat a panel of 12 jurors to decide the results of the case brought before them. Each panel was made up of local residents who, unlike the juries of today, were expected to already know the details of the crime, the characters of the persons involved, and other particulars that modern juries, prized for their ignorance of the crime and people involved, would have to learn through a long series of testimonies, evidence presentations, and fact-gathering. All of which was great, provided you were the sort of person who never, ever managed to offend anyone around you or with whom you interacted even a little bit. Because anyone could bring a claim to the courts and have their cases heard. Anyone at all. And because the juries required people who already knew about the crimes in question, they often included people who were intimately involved in said crimes, Meaning all it took was your neighbor being upset about how your dog barked at night to find yourself in front of a jury made up in large part of their neighbor's friends and relatives, accused of the crime, and liable for a significant fine or a trial by ordeal. And that would be the easy option. Since so many people could now bring suit, the local courts and the traveling contingent of judges were soon overwhelmed with a workload. So much so, that a system was implemented whereby the judges would visit each area once every seven years, meaning that the accused could sit in jail for as long as seven years before his or her trial was even held. Many people simply died while waiting their chance to prove their innocence. While the new system was revolutionary and unprecedented, its likely outcomes caused even more people to turn outlaw than before. If you were poor and disliked by your neighbors, the system would, one way or another, most likely kill you. Far better to run. Even then, a significant number of outlaws came from other strata of society. See, being noble-born wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Or at least it wasn't if you weren't the first-born male heir. Primogeniture, the practice of passing one's titles, wealth, and property to the first male heir, often meant that if you were second, third, fourth, or fifth-born, you were flat out of luck and needed to find something else to do with your life. Often it was traditional for the second son to go into the church and make their life there, but that still left subsequent sons out in the cold with nothing much to do. Some would go to sea, but it was several hundred years before the English naval tradition would even get a proper start, so that held limited prospects. If there was a war on, you could go to that and try to make your name and fortune for yourself, but often as not, You were simply thinning the herd of subsequent siblings in need of occupation. So, many sons of the nobility opted to take up banditry and make their living as well as occupy their time doing that instead. By far, the worst bands of bandits in England were those with members all from the same family and its friends and relatives. They would roam about the countryside waylaying anyone they met who looked like they might be worth robbing in order to provide for themselves in between serving in various wars. The hope, of course, was that by serving in the wars, these younger sons and bandits could earn a knighthood of their very own. While most of Europe subscribed to the philosophy that knights were born, not made, and you had to be the firstborn son for that to happen, England allowed people to earn the right to be a knight through service to the king. And anyone could earn it. Eighth, ninth, tenth sons, peasants, and even tradesmen were eligible, by dint of service, to take on a knighthood. And this made the most sense for England, which was mostly involved in fighting overseas. Landowners could pay a tax instead of mustering troops, and then this tax could be used to employ the increasing number of free men and outlaws throughout the country, forming them up into armies and marching them off out of the country where they could bother people the king felt really deserved a good bothering instead of the folks back home. Like the French. For about a hundred years. In fact... It was an even better deal for the outlaws, as even if they weren't knighted, they could earn a pardon for their previous misdeeds simply by serving. Meaning they were once again legitimate citizens with all the rights they deserved. At least until the next time they ran out of money or offended their neighbors. Then it was right back to robbing and pillaging until the next war. This has been GM Word of the Week, and we're glad you stopped by to listen. Why not make us a permanent part of your weekly schedule by subscribing wherever it is you happen to find us? We'd sure appreciate it. We announced last week that we had some merchandise available. Maybe we were a bit premature. Maybe not. In any case, we're going to make some adjustments to that system and then get back to you. You can still get what's on offer through Tee Public, but we'll have more info coming to you shortly. We're presented ad-free thanks to the kind contributions of our patrons on Patreon. For as little as a dollar, you can join us by going to gmwordoftheweek.com and clicking the yellow banner at the top. Join us on Patreon for transcripts, early episodes, and more. You too can help prevent ads like the one we received this week for VPN services. We have no idea what anyone would do with virtual pigeon networks. We have no desire to find out. This week's episode was once again inspired and informed by Terry Jones' medieval lives by Alan Arira and Terry Jones, a link to which you will find in the show description. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian, not one of your naturally merry men, Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Session. Diane ain't much of a livin'.